News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Lots has happened and developed in the last 24 hours when it comes to the Russia-Ukraine situation. Let's get up to date now with the help of Reggie Giacchini, our Global News Washington correspondent. Good morning, Reggie. Good morning. So it sounds like um, Vladimir Putin has essentially taken the gloves off and decided that he's just doing this. Yeah, I mean, look, this was uh, he was primed and prepped by his own parliament. The lower house within Russia uh, last week had really passed a bill forward saying that Russia really should recognize these breakaway regions in eastern Ukraine. Uh, and it was all but assumed that that is what Vladimir Putin would do. Uh, it took an hour and a bit for him to get to it in his speech uh, to uh, on Monday. Uh, but ultimately, recognizing uh, these two breakaway regions doesn't make them a part of Russian territory. It just allows Russia to see them as independent and violent international law, and it now raises questions as to whether or not Vladimir Putin may go further outside of the two kind of city centers and move into regions that are controlled by Ukrainian government. And there have been immediate repercussions, have there not? I know that Germany has made a pretty significant announcement. Yeah, look, canceling Nord Stream 2, uh, or at least freezing and halting it for now, is a big deal. It's going to be problematic for Germany itself because it is so reliant on Russian energy. But it is going to be a much bigger problem and consequence for the Russian economy because this is something that was going to pump billions of dollars uh, into Russia. Not having that now could pose problems. But look, this was always a threat that was facing, uh, that Vladimir Putin was facing, uh, and it wasn't acting as a deterrent. Now, we know that the United Kingdom has also put sanctions in place today against Russian banks and against uh, high net worth people within Putin's inner circle. But Russia is a country that has been facing the threat and, and ongoing sanctions for the last eight years. That has not acted as a deterrent. So it is, uh, you know, a growing question as to what the ultimate set of sanctions is going to be that could potentially bring Russia off of any kind of ledge that they're standing at right now. What was the response for the Biden administration? So, look, this is an interesting uh, situation. For the last several days, they've been talking about a threat being imminent. They've been talking about Russia invading. Now we have this Russia, quote unquote, peacekeeping mission moving into parts of the Donbass. And the United States is not calling this an invasion. Instead, they're simply saying that troops have been in this region for the last several years. Therefore, they're not going to announce uh, the big set of sanctions as of yet. We know that there was an executive order that was put out on Monday from President Biden that will restrict and limit and freeze the amount of financial transactions that can take place within these breakaway regions. We could get a broader view as to what a sanctions package is going to look like from the White House at some point today. But the bipartisan support for sanctions out of the United States has kind of broken down. A strongly worded letter was drafted. We simply don't know how Joe Biden, how his national security team is going to approach this. So is there any room left for diplomacy or does it seem like that's it? Well, I mean, it's, it's a loaded question because the West is saying, look, how can we continue to reach out this diplomatic arm if Russia is simply just going to walk all over everything? Well, at the same time, Russia is reaching out its arm to say, look, diplomacy is not dead. We still have these ongoing abilities to have a conversation at the same time that they are taking away that kind of sovereign right that Ukraine has to its territory and its territorial uh, uh, integrity. So, you know, both sides want to try to reach some sort of diplomatic solution here, uh, but it comes at 
at a time when tensions have now kind of reached a boiling point and it simply is unclear as to what Russia's next move is going to be. Look, Simi, it has come to a point of where the United States is now actively trying to work out a plan that would remove Ukraine's leader in the event of an, uh, an invasion and get him out of the country. That is where diplomatic talks are at right now. Right. Okay. And that speech yesterday by Vladimir Putin was really quite something. Uh, it essentially sounds like he just wants to return things to the days of the Soviet Union. Yeah, I mean, look, there was nostalgia for uh, the days of the Russian Empire. We should point out Putin has come out today to say that he does not intend to redraw the lines and the map of Russian Empire. Uh, but at the same time, he was talking about how Russia made Ukraine, how uh, the collapse of the USSR, uh, you know, ultimately what led to the independence and sovereignty of several Soviet nations. Uh, he called that, quote unquote, madness. So it really is unclear if Putin is kind of looking at Ukraine as a stepping stone here to potentially go into you know, maybe the Baltic states to say, look, you shouldn't have been independent in the first place. You should come back to Russia. That obviously would cross a huge red line. It would bring NATO into the picture. Uh, so, you know, whatever he was talking about last night to get up to this Donbass conversation, uh, it really has sounded alarms across most of Europe where rules-based order is really under threat. Okay, so now is it just a matter of waiting to see how far Russia goes? It is, and it's waiting to see what this diplomatic uh, door uh, is doing, whether or not it has completely slammed shut. Remember, there was potentially going to be a conversation between the White House and the Kremlin on the pretext that Russia did not invade Ukraine. The United States is not saying invasion, so will we see a potential meeting between Biden and Putin? That is a possibility. We know that the foreign ministers of Russia and the United States were supposed to talk in the coming days. Is that going to take place? It's still a possibility. It's still unknown. Anything can happen. The situation is kind of fluid and moving in a minute-by-minute basis here. Uh, so, you know, it, it's kind of one step forward, two steps back. It just depends on who's taking those steps. All right, Reggie, thank you for the update. Thank you. That's Reggie Giacchini, our Global News Washington correspondent. So yes, lots of eyes on what is happening there. It's a very tense situation. And I know there will be more to come, especially from the Biden administration. And we will have that for you. This is Mornings with Simi. We were talking this morning about previewing the provincial budget coming down at 1.30 this afternoon, and there's a lot of eyes on it. And I'm asking you, what is it that you would like to see the government make a priority here? Would you like to see them go back to making sure the budgets are balanced no matter what? Or do you think, no, some things we need to spend money on. Should it be health care? Should it be child care? What would you like to see in the budget? Send me at cknw.com. Now, one sector that is waiting for some more numbers on this is the forestry industry. They reminded the government during pre-budget consultations that, hey, this is a sector that contributes more than $2 billion a year to provincial revenues, provides something like 100,000 jobs in the province. So what are they hoping to see out of this? Joining us now is Alexa Young, Kofi's Vice President of Government and Public Affairs. That is the Council of Forest Industries. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Simeon. Good morning. Thanks for having me today. Can you tell me a bit about the process then that Kofi has kind of participated in? What have you been telling the provincial government? Um, that's right. And, you know, you, you said it earlier, this is a good opportunity in any budget consultation to remind the government of where the money comes from that's going to help pay for things like affordable housing, like daycare, like hospitals, like continued COVID supports. And so, you know, we spent some time uh, presenting to government and put in a submission to do just that, just to remind folks that this is a sector that continues to put paychecks in people's pockets. We support, you know, over 100,000 jobs in every corner of the province, and that's not just foresters in Prince George. It's 
you know, mill workers in, in, on the island, and it's drone makers and app developers in, in Surrey and Vancouver. And so, you know, this is certainly a sector that continues to contribute significantly um, to, to government uh, revenues, and it's going to help pay for all of the things that folks have their eye on today. And, and tell me about the last couple of years then for the forestry industry. How has it been? You know, it's been a, you know, I've joined the, the sector about two and a half years ago, and it's certainly been uh, a tough time. There's an important conversation happening about forestry in every corner of the province, but there's, have no, I have no doubt that the, the future can continue to be bright, particularly when you think about the fact that there's jurisdictions, there's countries around the world, there's customers around the world that are increasingly looking at fiber-based products sustainably harvested wood products as not only the material uh, of choice when it comes to building, but also when we're looking to collectively reduce our our dependence on single-use plastics. And so, you know, we've got the people, the resource, the know-how in BC. And sure, times are tough, but the future can continue to be bright. So what would you like to see from the government then? If there's something, what could be done to help out the industry? What we really need to focus on is this opportunity. We can continue to contribute um, to the things that all British Columbians care about when it comes to social services. But not only that, we are a part of the climate change solution. Forest products in all their form are tools in the fight against climate change. And so we need to turn our focus at all times to how we collectively seize that opportunity. What are the the tools, the programs, the partnerships that are going to help us get there? And, you know, the, the government um, has had a huge focus on mass timber as of late, and that's a great first step. That's a great start. But there's a whole bunch of other opportunities across the value-added spectrum of, um, of what the forest product here in B.C. produces. And we should be looking at all of those opportunities and how we support a primary healthy sector so that we can spend the money, invest in retooling mills, so that we can look at doing all of those things that the government, First Nations, uh, our workers and our communities all want to achieve, and that is healthy forests, tools in the fight against climate change, good jobs for British Columbians, and strong communities. What are some of those opportunities? So just as one example, it's extremely important to continue to invest in forest health, for instance. You know, there's, you know, you'd have to look no further than the, the recent floods, climate change. You know, it's having an impact on our forests. And so one of the things we'd like to see, you know, is continued investment in having uh, a sustainable uh, forest for today, but for, for years to come. And part of that is, for instance, in investing in new technologies and tools that are going to help us collect data to better understand what's happening in our forests so that we can all make good choices when it comes to keeping them healthy. It's been quite a roller coaster ride, hasn't it, with the way lumber prices have been going up and down, it seems like, over the last couple of years. What is the competition like from the United States right now? Well, you know, uh, Simi, and I don't have to tell you this, um, you know, it continues to be uh, you know, our, our, our biggest market, our most important market. You know, of course, the, the ongoing softwood lumber dispute continues to be a challenge. And what we really want uh, the U.S. government Um, to focus on is actually coming to the table in solutions because, you know, they've got a market over there where producers, U.S. producers, can't meet demand. And so the B.C., you know, lumber producers, forest products producers are always ready to step in and fill that gap. And what we need to do is have everyone come at the table 
looking at how we maximize this opportunity to provide, you know, goods not only for, um, you know, for British Columbians and Canadians, but American consumers looking to build with with low carbon wood products from BC. Okay, so then what is the number one thing do you think that you could hear in the budget today that would help local producers do that? Well, what we'd like to see first and foremost, and, and this this doesn't matter if you're a small producer, a big producer, a First Nations looking to uh, increase participation in the forest sector, it all comes down to having predictable access to fiber at a reasonable cost. And so signals as to, you know, how the government is going to work with industry, First Nations, labor, uh, to put the policies and the pathways on the right track to have a better signal to anyone who wants to engage in the business would be a very positive development coming out of today's budget. Are you hopeful? We're always hopeful. We're all looking for the same things, whether we're government, industry, or or communities. We all want healthy forests. We all want uh, tools in the fight against climate change. We want strong jobs good jobs and strong communities. So, you know, we're always hopeful and we're here to help. All right, we'll see what happens. Thank you so much for your time on that today. Thank you, Simi. This is Mornings with Simi. The last couple of weekends, we have seen a lot of protest activity, particularly focused on the Pacific border crossing here in BC. This past weekend in particular, you may have seen some of the pictures. It got a little tense, particularly when members of the media were there and trying to cover what was going on to the point where had to police had to step in and actually help out too. What's it like to get caught in the middle of all of that? And what is the, what, what are people saying? What what's the feeling coming from protesters at that point? And how do you deal with that? Joining us now is somebody who knows. It's Kamal Karmali, who's our Global News BC reporter who was there. Uh, Kamal, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. So tell me about what you were covering. What were you down there for? All right. So just the general protest, we knew it would be a big protest because obviously they, as we know, they had been uh, rallying and protesting at the Pacific Highway border crossing before when there were 12 arrests made last early last week. So police took down that protest and that blockade. And finally, uh, you know, the Pacific Highway border crossing crossing was flowing again. So we knew that this would be a big deal. A lot of the same characters would come back. So obviously it was a story. So we went down there and I kind of made sure I wasn't wearing any global news gear because we know the climate had not been very media friendly before in the past as well. Uh, so I was able to get in there with my phone and get into the middle of it. And it was in the intersection of 176th and 8th. And I got to say, Simi, it was actually a, a kind of like a party-like scenario. It was pretty jovial. There was no animosity towards one another and it was a, a, a pretty, um, you know, not so hostile, pretty happy environment. There was right. a lot of singing, chanting, or chants of freedom. Um, but I met up with my camera guy who obviously stands out because he carries a big camera. He carries a tripod. So once the two of us were paired together, that's when we became targets. People honed in on us. Uh, we were standing by our vehicle uh, just about half a block away from the intersection where there was a big crowd gathering. Uh, one person had parked his minivan uh, in the middle of the intersection to start the blockade and, and everyone had sort of congregated there. I would say maybe about two, 300 people in that intersection alone. And so then we went to police and went behind police lines um, to do an interview with police media relations. And so there was a blockade of vehicles uh, south of, uh, of ACE 
And so we thought we'd be safe there and police media relations, you know, we did sort of doing right. a one on one. It got a little um, it got a, started getting a little hostile. Some verbal slurs were thrown towards her in the middle of the interview. Um, and that interview took about five minutes or so. We turned around and there was a semicircle of people behind us. So that's when we knew things were starting to get bad. People started yelling at us. Um, and that's when police said, look, you need to get out of here because uh, the climate is changing. It's becoming more hostile. Um, I think what exacerbated uh, the verbal attacks uh, and what, hap- what happened afterwards, they started following us, was that we were two members of the media then surrounded by police and being escorted to our car. That was just a magnet for them. So we had to walk about a block to get to our car. And the police are wearing neon vests. They really stand out. They started following us. And uh, then the crowd started yelling slurs, saying we're pathetic, uh, you know, some not-so-radio-friendly right. uh, language as well. Um, we got in the vehicle, but we couldn't get out because we were parked next to a b- ditch. They surrounded our vehicle. Police literally had to push protesters back. Uh, you can see in my Twitter video, someone spits on our window. Oof. Middle fingers are going up. Uh, people have megaphones. And finally, <laughs> yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say, well, like, what happened? Like, you, you Clearly, you could feel the crowd turn at that point. That must have been quite, quite frightening for you guys. Yeah, I mean, we really try not to make the story about ourselves. Uh, I, I, we, there were genuine efforts to speak to members of the um, rally, uh, even prior to speaking to um, the police officer. But, you know, they've, they'd already made up their minds about us. Uh, you know, this is uh, a demographic that is very anti-media um, and believes that, you know, we are the fake news and all we do is spread lies and are puppets of the government, which obviously you and I know is, is not true. But uh, there was no convincing them otherwise. And... Uh, you know, it was so interesting to see the way they behaved because there was a gentleman I had parked next to a few blocks away, and him and I had a very cordial chat as we were walking down towards right. the, the heart of the protest. But as soon as we got there, he start, he completely turned on me. He went from this very nice man uh, who was having a very, you know, a civil chat with me to something in his head uh, like, you know, flip switched. Yeah, just, and he literally started, like, as soon as he became part of the crowd, turned around and started yelling stuff at me, you know, saying, uh, I'm, I'm this and I'm that. And then, you know, uh, yeah, so it, it, it was interesting. It's the mob mentality. Yeah, it certainly see, it does feel like it's kind of, you know, the more people that get involved in the shouting that starts, you're right, it kind of breeds that, right? People get kind of caught up. They always say that afterwards. Oh, we get caught up in that. Mm-hmm. Um, how, did, how did you feel, though, for your safety? Uh, you know, I, I will be honest. I, I don't think I was ever any under physical threat. Uh, there was a lot of uh, verbal harassment and slurs being thrown, and they started following us and booing us. Um, I'm sure you saw in the Twitter video, uh, CBC's camera operator and reporter, they were spat on a couple yeah. of times. Um, that is assault. Uh, but, you know, uh, I, I don't think I was ever any under threat of any punches being thrown or any sort of, um, you know, physical assaults worse than spitting. So, um, honestly, when you're in that moment and, you know, you have done a lot of stories yourself, you, the job comes first and you sort of forget about everything else, unfortunately. You, 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 you want to collect as much information and observation as possible. And it really only hits you once you're sitting in the quietness of the newsroom again. You're like, wow, I just went through that. But at the time, uh, you know, I was just focused on gathering video, uh, thinking of my TV story and seeing how much sound and, and if anyone would still talk to me because I really yeah. wanted to get their perspective. It, that is such, it's so fascinating the way you laid that out there to watch what happened. Kamal, thank you so much for your time this morning.
Thank you for your time, Simi. Appreciate that. That's Kamal Karmali, Global News BC reporter, talking about what it's been like. That whole idea that you can have a cordial chat with somebody and then 30 seconds later, they're they're kind of screaming obscenities in your face. Like that kind of sums up where we are at this point. How does that happen? This is Mornings with Simi. We're talking about the budget coming up today. 1.30 is when the finance minister, Selena Robinson, will rise in the House to table all the details. We'll have complete coverage for you, of course, right here on 980 CKNW. But there's lots of discussion about what will there be? What will the priorities be? Now, Vaughn told us earlier the government will be laying out a three-year fiscal plan. This is kind of like a blueprint out of the pandemic now. So we'll see what the focus is going to be. Will the focus be on, you know, balancing that budget in three years? Will it be on on some new spending? And if so, where will that spending be? Well, one of the, I would say, most anticipated sectors gotten a lot of attention in the last little while, of course, is childcare. So what is the childcare industry hoping to hear and see today? Joining us now is Allison Merton, Director of the Early Years Program at Collingwood Neighbourhood House. Allison, thanks for being back with us. Happy to be here. Is there a process by which childcare people were kind of involved in letting the government know, here's what we'd like to hear? Well, we we always have our professional associations that work closely with the government. So that would be the early childhood educators of B and the childcare advocates of BC um, who have put together a 10-a-day roadmap. So uh, we're hoping that government is listening to, to their uh, to their experience. Okay, what, what does that roadmap look like? Well, it speaks about um, more spaces. We definitely need more spaces that are 10 a day in this province. Um, and we definitely need an investment into the field of early childhood education. How close are we? I know we talk about $10 a day childcare. The government keeps touting it. But where are we really with that? <laughs> well, if you if you listen to those uh, professional associations, we're getting there, but we're we're not we're not there yet. There's still a, a lot of um, a lot of tracks to cover. Um, you know, where we need more spaces um, so that families can, can return to normal. If we're if we're making our way through out of this pandemic, um, we heard from Dr. Bonnie Henry in the most recent childcare town hall that childcare is essential. Um, so we hope that the there this is the time. To to invest in the childcare field. What is holding us back at this point, Allison? Then is it just not enough spaces? And if so, how do we build those spaces? Yeah, it, it definitely is um, not enough spaces for the families that need it right now. Um, and 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 what it's going to take to to increase those spaces is more childcare workers and early childhood educators in the field. Um, we have the most recent announcement is into ECE recruitment um, with bursaries to students and things like that. But we also need to hear about investment in the early childhood educators and childcare workers that are currently working in that field right now, um, so that we can retain them in the field in order to build those spaces. Right. So then, what do you need to hear in the budget today? Day that would show that we are on that map, we're on that road? We definitely need to hear some concrete um, announcements about um, funding that is allocated for this, um, you know, into the field. 
Um, and I think that would go a long way into providing those spaces for families as well. I think we would also like to hear that, you know, if we're not getting to those 10-a-day spaces as quickly as we would like, um, that they stick to their commitment about the 50%, reducing parent fees by 50% by December 2022 for those families that are not in 10-a-day in spaces. Right. Is there, that's the thing, those families that are not in the 10-a-day spaces, I'm sure other families are like, well, how do I get into one of those 10-a-day spaces? Yeah. Yeah, it's very difficult. You know, the wait list in BC is still quite long for childcare, um, especially in those infant and toddler age groups. And primarily, you see that's where the uh, the most expensive childcare spaces are. Um, so we definitely need to see that come down by December 2022, so that all families um, can feel the impact of uh, you know of the funding that goes into childcare. What is the wait list like at your program? It's very long. I bet. Um, <laughs> especially like I say for infant and toddler care there's not much infant and toddler care in the city of Vancouver um, so that remains a struggle for families um, so we have very healthy waiting lists in all our age groups and so is it a matter of then building those spaces and where do you put those spaces where do you build a new daycare center because that can't be easy either getting those up and running <laughs> that is not easy so we definitely need to see money that's put into um, you know into a new spaces fund where you know we work alongside governments and and municipals um, to uh, to find us those spaces and help us build those spaces because we know that childcare benefits everybody um, when when it's accessible to families. So what's like what kind of specifics do you want to hear then, Allison? Today is what would make like you think okay, we're on the right path. I would say um, a pleasant surprise in the amount of spaces that they're going to do for 10 a day. Um, we're still expecting to hear, um, you know, a commitment to the 4,000 that they promised by the end of March. They're getting there, but we'd like to, to hear that that is, is going to happen. And then further announcement that's, that's going to be more spaces, you know, by the end of the year. How close are we then to hitting that in the 4,000 spaces at the end of March? I haven't heard the exact numbers, um, but, but you know, we, we fully anticipate that they're going to be announcing, you know, by the end of the March that they're going to hit that target. I know that sounds like a lot, but is it really? Also, it's, when you consider how lot. many people actually need a space? It's not a lot. So that's why I say we, we need a pleasant surprise that they're going to go over and above that by the end of the year. That would be That would be ideal. Do you think a lot of business industries are on board now, too? Oh, most certainly. Most certainly. We're, you know, we hear from a lot of organizations and businesses that they support the, the 10 a day plan that's brought in by our professional associations. Um, you know, now more than ever, everybody knows that they need childcare for, you know, for everybody to return to, uh, to, to the workforce. So you're going to be listening very closely today, I take it. <laughs> very closely, yes. All right, Allison, thank you. Thanks so much, Simi. Allison Merton is a director of the Early Years Program at Collingwood Neighborhood House, where they have a sizable waiting list for child care people wanting to get into their child care program there. And that, I think, is probably the case just about everywhere right now, that there's probably a waiting list. So there's a lot of eyes on the budget coming down today about what will happen. As Allison just said, they're hoping for a pleasant surprise that they will hear that the government is going above and beyond uh, what is already in the works to really make some of these spaces open up. And you know what? This is a challenge for businesses too. If you want your employees to come back to the office, come back to work, or even get back into the workforce, 
You need to help them find a place to look after their kids, a place that they can trust, rely on, good quality daycare. And yeah, maybe then you'll be able to recruit those employees that you have been having so much trouble with. So we'll find out what is in store. Again, 1.30 this afternoon, you'll hear complete coverage and analysis. This is Mornings with Simi. So the city of North Vancouver is embarking on a pilot program they hope will have a big impact. Joining us now to tell us all about it is our contributor, Raji Silhal. Good morning, Raji. Hi, Simi. Good morning. Yeah, the city of North Van is going ahead with uh, this cool program. It's uh, just a trial at this point, a two-year trial, and it's uh, going to provide free period products to 14 washrooms around the city of North Van. And they're going to be at places like uh, City Hall, some popular parks, the main library. So like all places that are very easy to access with good hours. And uh, those products will be free for anyone who needs to access them. And it was uh, voted on unanimously by city council. Everyone uh, thought that this program finally needed to be in place. You know, this has become a real hot topic over the last couple of years, which I have found so interesting because it, it, and it just seems so obvious. <laughs> so, yeah. so why, and, and that they're doing it now, and it just seems like it's becoming more common. Yeah, and it's just a pilot because they're wondering how it will go, but I'm sure it's going to be hugely uh, popular. Period products are necessary for anyone that has a period. It's not like they have that much choice, but not everyone has access to these products. And uh, the price of them has gone up over time a lot too. And so with a program like this, a lot of people, I think, will first think that it's a program for people who can't afford the products. But affordability is actually only one small part of the picture. Equally big of an issue is the issue of taboo. Um, A lot of mothers don't talk to their girls about their periods, and those girls then don't have access to products. And if a girl has her period, say, at the age of 13, uh, she's not old enough to have a job. And if she doesn't have anyone to turn to for help in this way, then she's at a loss. And so what we see happening is uh, those girls will not partake in society fully. They won't uh, do the activities that they love doing. They might drop out of sports, but it could be like three, four, five days of every month that they have to deal with uh, having their period without having access to the products. And I talked to Mayor Buchanan of North Vancouver And she's actually a former public health nurse, and she was so excited to get this program going. You know, if I go back to when I was in high school, we routinely had access to to products. And then that just kind of seemed to disappear. And um, it kind of came up more in terms of other parts of the world where, again, young women were really losing big parts of their of their development because they were isolating themselves And then it just became, you know, then it's a cost factor. I mean, the costs of these products have exponentially gone up over the years as well. And so there's been many, uh, you know, between the United Way and other um, organizations that have been really promoting this. And it's just universal access to the things that we need. And we don't want anyone to be felt like they can't participate um, because this has been a barrier for them. Yeah, and uh, Mayor Buchanan said it's also an issue of of public health. You know, there's a whole lot tied into this. And I think that's, you know, as a former public health nurse, why, you know, this was always a big conversation with young girls um, and and boys too, because boys need to understand too, uh, you know, for future life partners or, 
um, you know, how they can be supportive or to their siblings, to their sisters, what have you, how do how can they be supportive to that? And, uh, you know, from my perspective, the more that you speak to uh, young people about what's normal, it's biological, it's, it happens, and it normalizes it. And when you don't normalize it, then it's seen as being something bad, or something's wrong with me, or something's, you know, like, something's happening to me, but I can't talk to anyone about it. It becomes liberating. So what is the cost going to be here? <laughs> good question. Well, the cost benefit analysis, it looks good. It's $12,600 over the course of two whole years. So not that much for what they're hoping will have such a great and positive impact. Here's Mayor Buchanan again. You know, some people would say, oh, that's a lot of money. But I think if you look at, from my perspective, when you look at small investment upfront, that that is a small price to pay for what we actually get for making sure that everyone in our community can be fully participating in day to day their day to day life and the day to day life within our within our community. Very small price to pay with huge uh, dividends uh, at the other end. Okay, this is interesting because you know, and I've always wondered about this in schools too. Like, think about for young girls in school. Like, this is just something that they've had to worry about for a long time, and they shouldn't have to. Totally, Simi. And um, she was talking there about how it affects a kid's development. It really can. Your emotional development when you have to isolate yourself because you don't have something as simple as period products available every month. I was actually one of those kids who uh, in elementary school in grade seven, I got my period for the first time and I didn't know uh, what to do about it. And um, I was in every sport, but uh, those first couple of months, I was not in those sports. And I was worried about it. And I had so many questions. Uh, but with a very busy working mom and a huge family, I did not feel I should interrupt anyone and, and um, just kind of dealt with it on my own. And so programs like this of accessibility, they are for so many more people than we are aware of. And you know, the mayor was telling me just how game changing it can be for for girls. I have since um, when when I was uh, in college, I worked with a bunch of volunteer advocacy programs around this kind of work to uh, to help gain access for young girls, for young women, for period products. And I have to say, it's moving very slowly because to me, this stuff seems like pretty obvious and easy way to, for us to help girls gain uh, fair access. Yeah, it really is. All right. Thanks so much for that. Thanks, Simi. It's our Raji Sohal talking about a pilot program in North Vancouver. I think a lot of municipalities are kind of thinking of going down this road too, particularly in school. This is Mornings with Simi. Right now, though, we're going to talk about the weather. Yes, it is cold outside. You've been hearing about it in the news, too. If you step outside, you go, yeah, it's cold. And then with the wind chill kicking in, we're talking temperatures of like minus nine. At least that's how it's going to feel in some areas. So what is going on out there? Well, we thought we would check in with Armel Castellan, who's our Warning Preparedness Meteorologist for Environment and Climate Change Canada. Good morning, Armel. 
Good morning. Thanks for having me on the show. Well, long time not talk to you. We tend to talk to you when there's something weird <laughs> yeah. going on with the weather. Right? <laughs> yeah, it's good when you don't talk to me too often. <laughs> That's true. Well, this isn't disastrous, thank goodness, but it is cold. So what's going on? Yeah, we've kind of turned off the tap and had actually above seasonal temperatures for a whole bunch of weeks now, you know, ever since that second week of January. So this is, yeah, it'll feel very cold. Obviously, the winds are funneling through the the Fraser Canyon there in Howe Sound, all the fjords, all the way up to Prince Rupert, in fact. And it's, it's just creating that dense, really low riding, super strong flow of air. And, and of course, it's stemming from that Arctic front that's behind it. And it's, uh, it's bringing us temperatures that are, yeah, fairly fresh for this time of year. They're not quite record breaking. Um, I don't know if you'll remember 2018, also on February 22nd, we had minus 7.5 without the wind chill. So it's not as cold as it was uh, just a few years ago, but it is definitely a return to below seasonal values. And in fact, Maybe I'm the bearer of bad news here, but it is also what we're projecting for the next few months to be still below seasonal values with La Nina continuing to have, uh, you know, its, its impact up here on the mid-latitudes of BC. And uh, we, I mean, it doesn't mean we're not going to go towards spring. In fact, for us, spring starts on the 1st of March, but it will be maybe a couple degrees cooler than normal for uh, the next few weeks before things really ramp up there in, in May and June, of course. I thought I had misheard you when you said <laughs> cooler, cooler than normal temperatures for the next few months. Yeah, it's uh, it's a thing. So La Nina is interesting because it doesn't really take hold until um, we get to kind of Christmas time. And then, of course, we saw that in spades. It was obviously yeah. a very strong, yeah, really cold then. But what's interesting is that, you know, we've kind of had a, a hiatus. You know, it hasn't had that typical northwesterly flow from, you know, the start of winter all the way to the end. And usually uh, La Nina can actually still have an impact on the BC coast and kind of southern Yukon for, uh, you know, even into early spring. So March, April, sometimes even well into April. Uh, in this case, we're looking at kind of that March, April, May period. And yeah, the probabilities stay fairly cool, uh, which is, again, it's not to say we're not going to warm up. We certainly are. This is when things really start to ramp up. The UV index is going to go from like ones and twos out of 10 to, you know, that moderate category pretty soon. Um, but, you know, even if we're a couple degrees below normal, It'll be uh, interesting to see how that will, you know, shape up for right. the snowpack going into spring and then the freshet and all these kinds of extra bigger kind of ecological factors. Yeah. What generally follows a La Nina period? Well, we will probably uh, emerge from it, looks like, in that kind of middle to late spring. But by then, its impact on BC are essentially negligible, statistically speaking. So we will... You know, the La Nina uh, phenomena will wear out anyways and will go towards neutral conditions. And then we'll have to see, we'll have to revisit that discussion in the summer, kind of early, early fall to, to see what we're looking at for next winter when, again, that impact could uh, affect us, whether we go into, you know, another La Nina. This is two winters in a row now or neutral or maybe even El Nino. But that's that remains to be seen. Okay, so then for this particular bit of cold snap, I guess we can call it. How long is this one supposed to last? 
Well, we are definitely going to see temperatures, you know, uh, below zero for the next few mornings. There's no doubt about that. Um, but what we will also see is the, the sun strength kind of coming into play. So especially Thursday, Friday, even though we'll. Oh, we seem to have lost our Mel there. He was doing such a role telling us about the forecast there. We seem to have lost him uh, for a second. It's Oh, I get so caught up in listening to him because he's so passionate about the weather and explaining to us exactly what is going on there. Okay, Armel, you're back. I am back. I don't know what happened there. Oh, we Sorry lost you for that. a second. Okay, so you're saying this is going to last for a couple more days. And what can we expect towards the end of the week? Yeah, by the end of the week, we're going to see the single digits get closer to double digits, particularly on Friday. So a super nice day. Uh, the winds are not going to be as strong. You know, even tonight, we'll kind of start to wear them down. And then by tomorrow, things are not going to be quite as blustery. So uh, a, a pretty marked change from today even to, to tomorrow. And then by Saturday, well, we go back into some more typical wet coast, uh, some some showers, some rain. Um, and But temperatures in the double digits so you win some and you lose some (laughs) (laughs) i do feel like winter sometimes gives us this last gasp right towards the end of february beginning of march like i remember in years past like a snowstorm on valentine's day or i remember even once a snowstorm on saint patrick's day that happens so we do sometimes get this we sometimes do and yeah it kind of hinges on that mid to late february and then things are kind of off to the races when the rest of canada is just jealous and uh we have all the buds and flowers just going everywhere (laughs) it always comes to bite us we start taking pictures of the buds the flowers coming up and boom cold (laughs) snap hits um armel thank you so much Okay, thanks again. Appreciate that. Armel Castellano, Warning Preparedness Meteorologist for Environment and Climate Change Canada. I'm sure you were seeing what I was seeing in the last week or two, right? You're out for a walk and you see all the flowers are coming up. Oh, it's great. Spring is coming. And then boom, we get this cold snap that is with us, sounds like, for this week. You heard Armel say it, definitely below below zero temperatures as you're waking up uh, for this week. And this morning with a bit of a wind around, you can't expect it to feel as, as cold as about minus nine, they're saying, because of the wind chill factor there. So Make sure you stay warm and then back to potentially double-digit temperatures for next weekend. But sounds like that's also going to bring some rain, right? So we can't have everything.